regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. episode of Datacast and today I'm uh, speaking with Arthur Giuliani. Arthur is senior machine learning engineer at Unity Technologies where he has worked as the founding member of the ML Agents GitHub project as well as the leader of the Obstacle Tower project. He is uh, also currently a PhD candidate in uh, the Cognitive Neuroscience program at the University of Oregon where he studies computation models of spatial representation learning in humans. Uh, so, Arthur, uh, glad to have you on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, so, I want to start out uh, our conversation talking a little bit about your educational background. So, you got a bachelor degree in uh, psychology at uh, North Carolina State Uni- University. So, um, can you just describe uh, your undergrad experience? Sure. Yeah, I think for perhaps compared to a number of people who are in data science or machine learning, I have a somewhat non-traditional background. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, I have a psychology degree, um, and that actually kind of originally came about because um, when I first joined North Carolina State, I entered to study computer science and philosophy, a dual degree, um, and I realized that a dual degree was maybe more than I uh, was wanting to do at the time, and uh, I started getting into cognitive science, and I saw that as a kind of nice middle ground between studying AI explicitly through computer science and these kind of other more uh, philosophical or psychological things I was interested around, um, how human brains work. So ultimately, I ended up uh, taking a number of courses in cognitive science through psychology, uh, in neurobiology, and that ended up leading into my eventually going to grad school to study cognitive neuroscience more explicitly. And uh, I believe during your time at college, you also um, worked as a research assistant at the LACE lab, which is a lab at uh, NCSU that you know, does the, uh, some of the research on, on cognitive neuroscience and human factor. So um, how did you get involved with this? Yeah, so I was interested in, you know, one of the things that came along with in moving from doing uh, two degrees to move doing one degree was that I had a little bit of extra time. Uh, so I wanted to devote that time directly to research because I knew research was what I wanted to be doing. And also I knew that um, if I wanted to get into good grad schools and kind of have an academic career that I needed uh, to be doing research. So I found this lab at, at NC State and they were doing really interesting cognitive and human factors research, uh, in particular with uh, older adults. So they were looking at the ways in which older adults' cognitive abilities decline over time. And then 
the kind of interesting element is the ways in which uh, different kinds of therapies or interventions can help maintain or even develop cognitive abilities in older people. So some of the research they were doing at the time that I joined the lab was they were using video games. They were looking at video games as interventions for older adults. So in particular, they were having, there was a study where they were having older adults play uh, this Nintendo Wii game. And they were looking at the ways in which that did or didn't ultimately affect certain cognitive outcomes. And so I was doing some research on uh, associated with that study in particular, looking at how um, social interactions while playing the game affected the cognitive outcomes for those participants. So could you talk about your decision to pursue the, a master's degree in uh, cognitive neuroscience at uh, the University of Oregon? right after you finished your, your bachelor? Yeah, um, well, I had done the research. Um, I'd finished my, or I was getting close to finishing my undergrad bachelor degree. I had uh, just published some research uh, with the work that I had done in the LACE lab. And uh, obviously, at least to me, I wanted to have an, uh, pursue higher education. So I was looking into graduate schools. I was in particular at that time interested in Uh, spatial representation. I think that was something that I kind of always been interested in, how people make sense of space. There was a little bit of that involved in the the research with the, the games and the older adults. So I was looking in particular at um, looking for advisors or PhD programs who were doing that kind of work. And my advisor at the University of Oregon, Margaret Serino, was involved with this research. And so she was one of the many uh, advisors who I applied to during the PhD process. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, it's typically uh, common for graduate student or prospective graduate students to apply to a number of different labs at different schools. So that's, you know, I kind of followed that pretty typical process. And this was the one that I both got into and I felt like was the best fit for me. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about your, your thesis work uh, at grad school in more detail? Yeah, so the program I entered was a, a joint master's PhD program. So the first year of the program was devoted to um, the the master's thesis. So we took courses and then we worked on a thesis portion. Um, so the lab that I was in, as I mentioned, did um, is involved with work on spatial representation But they also have another quite interesting line of work around um, looking at uh, how human, the human visual system processes fractal patterns. And so for people who aren't familiar with this, fractal patterns are uh, any sort of pattern that has uh, repeating structure at different scales. So a really good example of, of this kind of thing is something like a tree. So if you look at a tree and then you look at the branch of a tree, The branch of that tree is kind of like a mini tree in and of itself. And then that branch might have another branch sticking off of it. That's kind of like another tiny mini tree. So there's a number of, there's a lot of work that's been done in my lab with collaboration with others and in other labs looking at how uh, humans process these images in terms of how much they like them, how their visual system responds to them. But what I was interested in because of my focus on how people make sense of space is I was interested in how does this, uh, these fractal properties affect how people are able to navigate around. So the work that I had done was taking a look at uh, 
this way of measuring fractals or measuring any sort of complex visual complexity um, called the fractal dimension. But in fractal geometry, there's actually a series of dimensions between one dimension and two dimensional. So you could imagine, for example, perturbing this line so that instead of being a straight line, it becomes a, a kind of somewhat spiky line. And that would increase the fractal dimension because there's more complexity here. You could imagine continuing to perturb the line until it fills up the entire space. So that's one way, for example, of measuring the complexity of these fractals. So the work I had done was in virtual environments rendered in Unity and 3D, where human participants were asked to uh, perform a map reading navigation task and in environments of different complexity, these landscapes that humans are best at navigating. And that this particular range actually corresponds to the range in which humans are most frequently able to uh, detect certain shapes and the range in which people most frequently report as being aesthetically pleasing. Uh, so the research was kind of suggesting that there is this kind of sweet spot in terms of visual complexity that the visual system is able to best process. And uh, so, so what are some of the uh, potential application of of this uh, fractal dimension research uh, that uh, you know people might be familiar with? Yeah. So one of the applications of this kind of work is around um, architecture and design in general. So what the what you can kind of take away, I guess, from the method is that when you're building physical spaces, either outdoor spaces or inside spaces, there's a certain amount of complexity, which not only people like the look of best, but people are best able to make sense of. Towards the end of 2016, you start a new blog post series called Simple Reinforcement Learning Intensive Flow on Medium. So can you talk about the motivation for starting this series and what are some of the different reinforcement learning algorithms that you cover? Sure, yeah. So this coincided uh, about a year or so after I finished the, the initial uh, master's thesis part of my PhD. I had spent a lot of the time the following year um, starting to get interested in machine learning. There were, this is around the time where a number of big uh, kind of interesting deep learning results around object recognition, game playing, machine translation were starting to come online. And uh, there were a number of interesting connections to um, neuroscience as well. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the things that initially caught my eye were the Google, the deep dreaming uh, that Google Brain kind of shared the ability to have uh, these trained neural networks hallucinate her steps onto an image. But there's quite an interesting connection to uh, actual kind of like hallucinations in the visual system and what. Uh, Google was doing here with this deep neural network. So that kind of caught my interest. Um, from there, uh, looking into these different machine learning algorithms, reinforcement learning was of particular interest because I, I saw it as a way of uh, learning how to act. Uh, there's also quite interesting connections between reinforcement learning and uh, neuroscience as well. Uh, so as I was kind of uh, teaching myself, reinforcement learning felt that one of the best ways to to teach myself and to ensure that I knew was to write about them uh, and do my best to share what I was learning. So the series ended up being kind of like a step-by-step -step guide following 
what I was learning at the time in reinforcement learning. You also asked about the different algorithms. So what I cover back then are the simple, so in reinforcement learning algorithms are divided kind of into two broad categories. There are value learning methods and then there are policy-based methods. And I cover simple algorithms in both value and policy methods. And then I also cover some simple algorithms in uh, what's called actor critic, where you combine the two. Yeah, and, and I'm sure I'm going to link that uh, that series into the show notes so people can take a look. My understanding is that you have been uh, doing your PhD part-time uh, in, the, in the past few years since you finished your, your master's degree. So can you talk more about this uh, decision? Yeah, so after I finished, uh, gotten the master's degree, I started to get interested in machine learning. Um, this was also, as I mentioned, around the time that deep learning was kind of becoming very popular. A lot of uh, companies and industries were becoming interested in it. So it coincided with this period where I had actually taken a few months leave from the university program to focus on this deep dive into reinforcement learning. And it just so happened that I got connected um, with a uh, the person who is starting the machine learning and AI group at Unity. And as I hinted at earlier, my thesis work actually used Unity as a virtual simulator. And so I had had familiarity working with Unity. Mm -hmm. uh, Unity was interested in people with machine learning experience, which is what I was uh, obtaining kind of at the time. So it was kind of ended up being this really nice uh, connection where there was interest in opening up Unity as a platform to do machine learning, in particular to do these kinds of uh, reinforcement learning simulation tasks. And I had had experience in both of these things and was excited about turning Unity into that kind of platform. So I believe that you working while, you know, still doing your PhD on the side, right? So can, how did that process kind of work for you? How did you, uh, I suppose, sort of manage your time and I guess balance between both work and, and study? Yeah. Uh, it's definitely not something I would recommend for most people. Um, it's quite a it's quite a challenge to balance both. Um, I would say it's helpful to have uh, to be doing the two in in two areas that are somewhat um, provide synergy to one another. So, for example, a lot of what I've learned technically uh, through working at Unity, I've been able to has helped my ability to develop experiments um, and simulations for my PhD work. And uh, my heavy academic focus has also helped kind of guide the thinking on different approaches to projects uh, in the, the workspace. In terms of kind of strictly how to structure it, um, what I had been largely doing was kind of switching off so a certain amount of time focused purely on work, a certain amount of time focused purely on academics. I definitely wouldn't advise people to try to, for example, do both in a single uh, every single day, right? Something like one hour this, one hour that. Both, uh, well, especially with a PhD, I suppose it varies based on your work, but I think most work is is similar where uh, to do really good work, you have to be able to spend a prolonged period of time thinking deeply about a problem. In both cases, uh, it's important to give the time and space for that. So, you know, as you mentioned, you've been working as a a senior machine learning engineer at Unity. And uh, at Unity, you work on the ML Agents Toolkit, which is an open source platform for 
creating and interacting with simulation environment, um, you know, using the Unity uh, platform. So, uh, can you talk about some of the problems of you know previous environment platforms, and how does this uh, toolkit uh, uh, provide a, a solution to address those problems? Yeah. Well, originally, you know. When I started the, the ML agents team and started working on the toolkit, uh, my vision for it was kind of what I, as a researcher, dreamed of having, which was a really flexible 3D platform where I could define reinforcement learning or other kinds of learning problems uh, with kind of as much control as I wanted. Um, so thinking about other pre-existing platforms, so either you're taking a pre-existing physics simulator or you're taking a fixed game, typically. So Atari Learning Suite, and then these Mujoko physics simulations are kind of the two main uh, domains that are used very frequently in deep reinforcement learning. Um, and the issue with both of them is that uh, if you have a very particular task in mind, it's uh, very difficult to define that task specifically in either of them. So in the case of Atari, you have to just pick um, one of the Atari games and hope that it's similar to the kinds of research questions you want to ask. Um, in the case of Mujoko, there's a little more flexibility, uh, but you're limited mainly to physics-based problems. Um, but the Unity engine is a general-purpose 3D engine, so it's been used to create games of all possible genres. Um, and because it has kind of no assumptions about the kind of 3D content that you're creating. Um, it's very powerful for creators of 3D environments to define in terms of all of the logic, all of the visuals, all of the physics. Um, they have complete control over all of that. Nice, nice, yeah. Um, and so uh, since its introduction in 2017, uh, your, the team has released like formal iteration of this toolkit, uh, adding different features and introducing some of the more uh, challenging environments for the people. So um, I'm just curious, what are some of the challenges in terms of you know maintaining and continuously uh, iterating the software? Yeah, well, I would say that um, it's been quite a, a journey. So when I first joined, I was the only person working on it, and now we have a very a quite large team of about a dozen people. Um, so one of the keys to uh, kind of continuing to develop is, I think, uh, to be able to grow. And we're fortunate at, at Unity to have um, the people in leadership positions at Unity who kind of supported the open source platform, supported our vision, um, and kind of gave us those resources. I would say the other important aspect is that we knew we wanted to have an open source tool, and we knew that the community was really important. So we've done our best to try to uh, nurture and engage with the community around ML agents as much as possible. So we've gone to a lot of uh, local events. We try to be very active on the GitHub page mm -hmm. um, to respond and to collaborate with different people who are working on it, especially because it's not just like a, it's not a product, right? So it's a, it's a toolkit and anyone who's using it is going to be using it to make their own 3D content that then they try to train agents in. Or if they're a researcher, they're going to be trying to take or build or modify an environment and then use that as a benchmark for some sort of interesting new algorithm that they might have. So in both cases, there's this kind of collaborative element where the toolkit is kind of the, the middleware that 
they're using and that results in a lot of kind of interaction so we get a lot of really helpful feedback from working kind of directly with researchers and game developers for me personally i'm very interested in one of the features uh in the toolkit that um, allows for, for the training the agents with an additional uh, curiosity based intrinsic reward which uh, i think mm -hmm. uh, in, in one of the blog posts you mentioned that was inspired from a paper from the research lab at uc berkeley so would you mind uh, discussing you know curiosity based exploration uh, in uh, more detail no i wouldn't mind uh yeah this is a fun one to implement because i worked on both a, a new environment to validate it and the algorithm itself which uh was not only inspired but which was very much based on uh, the work by uh, deepak Bhakat, uh from uc berkeley yeah so the basic uh motivation for this is that in deep reinforcement learning you the agents learn their behaviors from a reward signal and this reward signal is uh can be more or less sparse depending on where the rewards are in the environment and how hard they are to get to in cases where the reward is especially sparse like maybe you have to complete some series of uh, tasks or behaviors to get a final reward at the end the agent doesn't have so much of a learning signal and uh, since they typically start off just by randomly trying things, it might take a very, very long time to randomly try the right things. The idea behind curiosity is to give the agent this secondary uh, auxiliary reward based on some sort of learned metric. So this is kind of the, the domain of intrinsic rewards. A curiosity-based metric is one based around whether or not the agent thinks it has seen or whether or not you can train a predictive model to be good at guessing what it's about to see. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, if you can imagine some sort of long, complicated maze or something like this, this would provide a larger reward at parts of the mazes that the agent hasn't seen yet, uh, which naturally kind of allows the agent to start exploring and explore further and further and further until it will hopefully eventually find the true extrinsic reward in the environment that it can use to learn from. So, so what are some of the challenging of uh, finding those those intrinsic reward? Uh, is is it like uh, take a lot of how uh, iteration, or you know, or maybe like uh, other things that might come into play? So, I think the real trick is just balancing what counts as the real trick. I guess is figuring out what counts as novel in an environment. So, you know, I mentioned one where you know, uh, if you have a maze where the walls look different in different parts of it. And that's pretty straightforward. These kinds of curiosity approaches have been used to help agents learn in the game of uh, the Atari game Montezuma's Revenge. Mm -hmm. And in this game, every room has a different appearance. So when you get to a new room, it looks very different than an, an old room, and you can know that you have a good reward. Uh, and these methods work less well, or it's less clear how they might work in places where things uh, often look very similar or in places where things are always looking very different, changed very much. Hmm. For example, if you can imagine uh, the same maze that I described before, but all of the walls are glowing rainbows, right, that are constantly changing colors, something like that would confuse quite a bit uh, one of these curiosity-based agents. So, so uh, listening to, I guess, your description kind of, um, allow me to to relate a bit to kind of kind of my current research work. You know, is this is kind of like you know intrinsic versus external reward, right? Um, so I'm actually doing a bit of research on on a deep learning based recommendation system. And one of the problem in in recommendation model is the idea of the co-star problem when you don't have a lot of historical data 
from from the user item you know essentially they don't have a lot of explicit feedback uh, you know i'm trying to do is kind of like using some of these neural network model to to model the implicit feedback balance for that uh, and then try to combine both the explicit and in the implicit feedback uh, to to predict uh, the lies the taste of, of the, the user so it seems like you know this approach of uh, incorporate intrinsic reward into your your, your agent somewhat is similar to, to what I'm, I'm uh, kind of doing as well. Yeah, I think the idea of intrinsic rewards make a lot of sense and they have a lot of applications. It's really just a question of, you know, once you say, okay, I want to use intrinsic reward, now there's a whole space of possible intrinsic rewards and they bias the agent to act in different kinds of ways. So then it's really a question of, you know, how clever can we as the algorithm designer be to come up with an intrinsic reward that will bias the agent in a way that we really want it to be biased. Hmm. And so in the most recent release of the Analogen Toolkit, your team introduced the Obstacle Tower, which is a high-fidelity 3D third-person procedurally generated environment. So can you talk more about the motivation and as well as the process of actually building this environment? Yeah, sure. Um, so ML Agents had been, about, uh, had been out for about a year or so um, when we started thinking about Obstacle Tower. And uh, the motivation kind of came from two different places. One place came from the fact that we had built a lot of these simple example environments showing how you can use Unity and ML agents uh, if you're a researcher. But we hadn't really pushed the limit of what was possible with Unity. Um, and we wanted to have kind of a, a high quality showcase for the kinds of environments that could be built. And then on the flip side, I had kind of uh, personally gotten quite interested in uh, following research results around the Atari game Montezuma's Revenge that I had mentioned. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, kind of considered to be a notoriously difficult uh, game for deep reinforcement learning algorithms to solve. Uh, this is because the rewards are really quite sparse mm -hmm. um, and it's very easy for the agent to to enter a death state along the way. So it can, and anytime it falls or hits an obstacle, something like this, um, it dies. So a number of people, had, research groups had started sharing results in 2018, suggesting that they were able to solve Montezuma's uh, revenge. And you know, there's this kind of dissonance between the fact that people had seen Montezuma's revenge as, you know, if we can solve this, then we must have a really powerful powerful algorithm on our hands. But then it turned out that a lot of the methods people were using were actually quite simple mm -hmm. and uh, certainly didn't correspond to very, very intelligent, high intelligence. Um, and one of the things they were exploiting in Montezuma's Revenge is the fact that the game is entirely deterministic. So these uh, old Atari games, the Atari doesn't have any method of doing random number generation. Mm -hmm. So every time you would play Montezuma's Revenge, it would be the exact same game. So you could, for example, if you uh, are an expert in the game, you can completely memorize it. You could start up the Atari game, uh, close your eyes, put in the right sequence of button presses, and beat the game. And uh, I think most people would agree that that's not a, real, a good measure of intelligence. And that, you know, any simple algorithm could, uh, in theory, <laughs> memorize a series of actions and just uh, repeat those out. So that motivated the procedural element of Obstacle Tower. 
So the idea was not only, you know, we'll have this really nice visual showcase of uh, the quality of environment, but also a heavily procedurally generated environment mm-hmm. where any sort of deep reinforcement learning agent is going to do well in Obstacle Tower. I guess just kind of going off of that, you wrote a blog post about this uh, on solving Monthly's Mass Revenge, right? And then you exactly you, you discuss some of these uh, drawbacks of the results from DeepMind, OpenAI. It was about six months, I think, between sharing that article on my Medium and then us publicly announcing Obstacle Tower. But there was a direct, uh, it was probably only a few weeks after writing that article. Um, I had gotten back from summer, a summer vacation, back to work, and um, we started talking at Unity about what, uh, what kind of environment we could make that would be a, be a proper challenge to modern algorithms. Mm. And um, talking, talking about sort of like motivation for the community, your team also launched the Obstacle Tower Challenge, which is a contest that offers researchers and developers uh, the chance to compete and to train the best performing agents on, on the environment. So uh, can you talk uh, more about uh, this contest and uh, how did you guys pick the winners? Yeah, so once we had built Obstacle Tower, we wanted, of course, to see what researchers could do with it. And we felt that the best way to help uh, promote the platform and to get as many researchers or hobbyists interested was to hold a contest. We partnered with uh, AI Crowd, which is this platform that had been hosting and is hosting this year as well, um, the NeurIPS. Uh, competitions or a number of competitions through the NeurIPS conference. So the idea was that we would provide people a build of Obstacle Tower that they could interact with to train their agents. And then they would submit their trained agents and it would be evaluated on a separate uh, cloud instance that had a uh, test version of Obstacle Tower that had a different version of the tower. So this ties back into this notion of procedural generation. So an obstacle tower, the goal of the agent is to climb as high into the tower as possible. So the tower is broken into 100 floors and uh, agents navigate each floor, get to the elevator that takes them to the next floor. So what we were evaluating them on was based on, given an agent that was trained on this instance of randomly generated towers, uh, how well can it do on a set of randomly generated towers that it's never seen before? Mm Uh, so that was kind of the objective criteria. So there wasn't really a, a subjective element. Uh, it was based entirely mm-hmm. on how well the agents were able to do on the challenge. I, I guess like uh, another question I'm so pretty curious about is um, uh, the people who you know compete in this competition. You know what what are what are you know some of the common uh, background or, the, or demographics that that you observe. Yeah, it was quite varied, I would say. So we had a number, it seems that there's, you know, within the machine learning community, there's different uh, popular platforms like Kaggle, and there are a lot of uh, these competitions, like the ones being held on AI Crowd. Um, So I think there's a community of hobbyists uh, who kind of always like to participate in these. We also got a number of submissions from uh, PhD students and people who are just... uh, machine learning engineers or data scientists and like to do this kind of thing in their free time. What might be possible future challenge to just kind of continue from, from this momentum of the competition? Yeah, we don't have any future challenges. I would say that, you know, one of the things we, we learned from running in this challenge is that uh, building a game from scratch and running a challenge all within less than a year is quite a big, um, quite a big undertaking. 
So one of the things that Unity we're kind of interested in is balancing between, you know, what we're most interested in is helping promote research mm-hmm. uh, and helping to promote uh, the, the ML agents platform. So I think if in the future another challenge makes sense, like if we can identify a problem that we think is really interesting, then we're open to hosting another challenge. Um, but if there are other ways to help engage with the research community we're open to those things as well so let's discuss a few of the other blog posts that you have written on medium that i found to be very interesting so in a very fun tutorial called gans explained with a classic spongebob squarespan episode you walk through the theory behind you know generative adversarial network algorithms via an explanation of using an episode on, on spongebob so how did you come up with this idea so uh it was based on the fact that when i first read the gan paper I had to think through it quite a lot uh, before uh, I personally kind of understood it theoretically. But then, of course, it turns out that there's a relatively straightforward way of thinking about it, which is this idea that you have um, the generator and the discriminator, and the generator is constantly trying to trick the discriminator. And I was wanted to do a post where I could explain this concept in kind of the most straightforward way possible. And uh, I grew up as a kid watching a lot of SpongeBob SquarePants. Um, there's a particular episode where SpongeBob is trying to look like a tough guy and get into a bar. And he keeps trying on different costumes and different tricks to get into the bar. And uh, for whatever reason, that came to my mind. And I, I felt like it was a, a really good fit for giving like a very fun analogy for the, the discriminator and the generator. Yeah, uh, you actually have a whole like the, the source code that um, that you use um, DC Gen right to image generation on TensorFlow. So I, I definitely recommend any, any listener to to go there and take a look at the code. In uh, in another blog post called uh, Reinforcement Learning Are Evolutionary Strategies Nature Has a Solution Both, you compare these two methods and you argue that evolutionary strategy are ideal for situation with extremely sparse reward. And reinforcement learning could be good when a rich feedback signal is available. So, can you um, extrapolate a bit more on some of these st- statements? Yeah. So, in this article, uh, it was about the time that OpenAI had published a, a paper showing that you can use a very simple evolutionary method to do relatively well on the Majoko suite of uh, control tasks. And um, I had been thinking a lot about RL at the time, and there was this kind of mini discussion about whether or not reinforcement learning or evolution was better, one was better than the other. Um, but as you kind of already pointed out in the title, uh, you know, if you look at the natural world, we have uh, these two processes take place at, at essentially just at different timescales. So we have um, evolution taking place on a very long time scale. And then within animals that are able, that have relatively developed brains that are relatively plastic, we have this learning within lifetime that happens. And these kind of two serve different purposes, right? So if you look at what evolution is good at optimizing for, it's good at optimizing for this very sparse signal of, is the animal able to survive long enough to recreate, uh, to recreate, um, reproduce? And then within animal learning is all about is, is the animal able to kind of like fine tune its adaptability to whatever the the situation is going on. 
Right. And that fine tune often involves much more sparse rewards, or rather, uh, much more dense rewards. Yeah, and then you know, from the algorithmic perspective, uh, these uh, evolution algorithms are typically designed in ways where they don't care when you get the reward or how frequently you get the reward. All they care about is for a given episode of training, how much reward did you get or not? And this uh, is a when if your reward is really sparse this is a better way to deal with a sparse reward than the reinforcement approach, which is trying to specifically assign credit to the actions and states that led to a certain reward. I took a class on like biology inspired algorithms, you know, in school last, last year and like learned, learned a little bit about sort of a couple of these, you know, genetic algorithms and uncolony optimization, some of the stuff that seems like falling into that uh, evolutionary camp. Um, so uh, I can totally uh, agree on, on a couple of the, the statement that you just mentioned. So uh, just kind of like related to that situation, what, what are some of the applications in the real world where there's sparse reward and then when there is a rich feedback signal that you just can that we can use these two approach uh, properly? Mm. So yeah, one of the cases um, typically there's rich feedback signal often when you are doing robotic control. Um, so like, let's say you want the, the arm to move to a very specific position and you want to optimize the ability to do that, right? Uh, at every given time step, you can say whether or not the arm moved to where you wanted it to move and how much it moved to where you wanted it to move. Um, so that's a case where you can really easily quantify that um, and give a good reward based on it. Um, now places, there are a lot of conditions, perhaps, uh, where there are much more sparse rewards. I think, you know, I've taught a number of people in the, the space of advertising, for example, are interested in using different kinds of methods based on reinforcement learning. And that's a case where uh, rewards can often be quite sparse in the real world. So, you know, whether or not someone clicks on an ad or whether or not someone ultimately buys a product mm. is a, a signal that you get only once very, very infrequently. That's a very uh, applicable solution for uh, evolutionary strategy. Uh, in another post called Making Sense of the, the, the Bias, Variance Trade-Off in Deep Reinforcement Learning, you uh, share a couple approach to balance the, the bias and the variance you know, in reinforcement learning model. Can you just quickly give a overview of some of these uh, approach? The, I'll, I'll start, I guess, with the motivation for this article. This article was motivated by the fact that we had released the ML Agents Toolkit and a number of people were using it and it comes with proximal policy optimization algorithm, which is one of the state-of-the-art methods for doing uh, deep reinforcement learning. But it, it comes with a number of hyperparameters that you have to tune. And uh, People, we were getting a lot of questions about these hyperparameters. And I realized, you know, they don't necessarily, these questions don't necessarily have really simple answers. Um, and that they were tied in with whether or not uh, this, this question of uh, bias and variance. So in traditional machine learning, bias and variance corresponds to essentially uh, how well your model is fitting mm -hmm. the data. So if you have a, a high bias model, then it's not going to be fitting the data very closely. If you have a high variance model, then it's going to be uh, overfitting the data and that it might uh, like look too much into whatever sort of patterns it sees. 
in reinforcement learning, this corresponds to often things like uh, how well we're estimating value, the value of states, for example. So we can either be biased about our estimates, mm -hmm. which is that we always estimate something consistent, but something consistently wrong, or we could be have high variance in our estimates where those estimates are on average, perhaps more right, but any given instance of them are uh, off the mark. So this post, I just go through a number of different methods for essentially trading off between these two things. And essentially in reinforcement learning, the best uh, algorithms are ones which introduce both bias and variance, but in such a way that the two, neither is so uh, overwhelming as to end up with a bad solution. It seems like you describe a lot of different you know, strategies to, to handle those, those the drawback of both biases and variance. So it's definitely helpful for anyone who wants to you know, train their reinforcement learning model uh, more efficiently. And then uh, in your most recent postcode, the present in terms of the future, successes representation in reinforcement learning, you uh, discuss some of the way in which uh, successor representation have been applied in you know deep learning psychology and neuroscience in recent years. Um, so why are you excited about this new approach? Well, part of it, as you may imagine, is because of my background. So uh, just a little more context for your listeners who aren't familiar. The successor representation is a way of um, representing states in reinforcement learning where each state is represented by the future states that that state typically lead to, given a certain policy. Um, this is useful because you can combine the successor representation with an estimate of rewards uh, in, in a given environment, uh, like where the rewards are, and you can really quickly use those two pieces to calculate uh, a new policy for getting to those rewards. So within the space of reinforcement learning, people are interested in it because it opens up the possibility to do multitask learning, or multi-goal learning, you might say. Um, but Within the field of psychology and neuroscience, there's interesting connections to how the brain might actually be representing uh, space in animals um, and how we generally represent the structure of different uh, tasks. Reflecting on your um, you know, research career thus far, how do you think you know, your psychology and neuro neuroscience background has been beneficial? I, I see it. Um, as a kind of uh, back and forth, as I mentioned a bit earlier. So there's a lot um, that I gain from working in more software engineer data, pure data kind of space mm -hmm. that is then very helpful to how I think about and design experiments that I'm doing in the cognitive science space. And it's helpful to just be a stronger programmer, of course. Um, but then I would say that from psychology and neuroscience, there's a lot of deep thinking about how learning systems uh, work, uh, how the instantiated versions of uh, highly adaptive learning systems, such as humans or other mammals, um, work. And I think there's a tremendous amount of insight that can be gained from studying these things that's then applicable to algorithms and methods in more pure machine learning. So the curiosity is a really great example of this. Um, this motivation for curiosity is kind of a biologically based motivation. A lot of reinforcement learning and uh, evolutionary algorithms are based on studying uh, like biological populations 
or uh, learning in animals. As I mentioned before, uh, a lot of reinforcement learning is grounded or has very strong connections to computational models of learning in animals. So also, you know, like uh, the people, reinforcement learning itself as a field actually kind of burgeoned out of uh, psychology originally also. What could be your key advice for a graduate student who want to make a dent in the AI and machine learning research community? Yeah, I think um, there's probably two pieces. So I, I think like reading a lot, like becoming very familiar with the field is helpful. Implementing things yourself is really helpful, especially in the space of AI and machine learning. Uh, pretty much all of the models or the vast majority can be coded or there's open source GitHub code available to learn from. And then in terms of actually making a dent in the community, I think picking topic and then diving into it is really important. So I think perhaps one uh, pitfall people might fall into is that they need to just beat some sort of benchmark and uh, try doing better than someone else's research. But I think uh, the space of all possible helpful research is very big and uh, often people can have bigger impacts by trying new things that don't necessarily beat the benchmarks but uh, provide new insight into how all of these algorithms are actually working. That's a very insightful advice that uh, I think any researcher can, can take away from. Um, so at this point about conversation, I, I want to uh, consider with a closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three a rapid fire question and then you can give some tactical advice uh, and resources for people who are seeking them um, and so uh, the first question is that um, what are some of the companies that are doing exceptional uh, machine learning and AI work that you really admire yeah so I would say that DeepMind, uh, Google Brain are probably the two that are doing a lot of in terms of the work that I follow the most Um, you know, if you're interested, if people, your listeners are interested in work that has a very strong neuroscience psychology grounding, um, DeepMind is really the group that's doing that. And uh, Google Brain has been doing a lot of very interesting work around robotics control. It seems that they've kind of picked robotics as a, as a domain that they're interested in. And uh, within that space, they're going quite far in terms of developing interesting algorithms. Second question is, uh, what is one book that you could recommend for people who want to develop a better analytical mindset? Yeah, so this one's going to perhaps be <laughs> quite uh, far afield from maybe what some of your other guests have recommended. But I've spent the past year uh, being in a, a reading group where we're reading through the book uh, Being in Time by Martin Heidegger. Mm. So this is a, a work of philosophy, but it's quite dense philosophy. Um, and it, it's essentially asking, trying to understand the question of uh, what does being mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, I often find that it's reading philosophy, even though it doesn't have much to do with uh, the kind of pure numbers <laughs> world that I deal with uh, in the AI ML world, is a really, really good training for helping to think outside of typical patterns mm -hmm. and to think through other people thinking very deeply outside of the typical way of thinking. I think especially uh, if you want to have a strong research mindset, it's very helpful to be able to break free of the kind of default mental patterns that we typically have. The final question is that 
Imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring data scientists on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, uh, if I think anyone who's interested in being a data scientist or a machine learning engineer or working in the space of AI, my biggest recommendation, and it's really what helped me the most, was that they just uh, try out things themselves. So for me, the space of going from uh, someone who's focused purely on cognitive science to doing a lot of work in machine learning was all about finding papers and methods that I was interested in and trying to implement them from scratch. And uh, being able to do that over and over again really gave me the confidence and the insights needed to then uh, apply these techniques in, in the real world. Well, Arthur, thanks a lot for sharing that advice. I think it's very important newcomers to you know get overwhelmed with a lot of the the high you know upcoming research uh, in this field because there's a lot to learn. But as you just mentioned, just having that muscle of reproducing results from other people and can try to learn over the time gonna I guess like make make them more confident along the, their learning journey. So yeah, I really appreciate uh, you spending time with me today uh, talking about your background in psychology, some of your research work on neuroscience, some nice stuff on uh, the reinforcement learning uh, technologies that you work at, uh, your work at uh, Unity has been developing, as well as um, various other insights on, on the state of, of RL and, and the, the research community. And I'm sure that a lot of people are going to uh, find this episode to be impactful and uh, informative. So thanks a lot. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.